Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for the fellowship of believers. Father, thank you that we, we, we were able to gather today here on the Lord's Day and celebrate you, God. Worship you in spirit and truth. Study your word. God, let excitement and let joy fill our hearts this morning as we know that we're in your house, we're with our brothers and sisters, we're studying your word, and we're connecting with you, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we magnify you. God, as you've been exalted in our worship, please be exalted in our teaching. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. All God's people said, amen. 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 You may have a seat. You may have a seat this morning. It's great to see everyone this morning. Hope everyone's been doing well. Hope everyone's had a really good week. So this morning, we are finishing our final chapter in the book of Revelation. How about that? My first time teaching through the book of Revelation, and I was blessed. I hope you were blessed also. We spent 32 Sundays, I counted them, 32 Sundays, minus a couple of guest speakers. We spent 32 Sundays studying the book of Revelation verse by verse, and I hope you have been blessed. blessed. Last week, we began our study um, on heaven. Remember Revelation chapter 21, we studied heaven. And If you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and watch last week's message, but we began our study on heaven, and what did we see? Some truths about heaven. We saw there's going to be a, 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 a new creation. There's going to be a new heavens. There's going to be a new earth. We saw that... Uh, the new Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. And we explored it. That's what we did. We, we took a, a scripture-guided tour of heaven last week. And this week, we're going to continue with our scripture-guided tour through the book of uh, through Revelation chapter 22. But questions come to mind when we think about heaven. You know, what will heaven be like? What will we see? What will we be doing? And that's near and dear to a lot of our hearts this morning because of what happened last Sunday evening. Our brother Marty went home to be with the Lord. He went home to be with the Lord last Sunday night. And uh, as we said, we're going to have a celebration of life service this coming Saturday. But what was it like? What's it like to leave this world? The Bible says that for the Christian, when you die, your physical body, which we call the shell, goes into the ground. But the eternal part of you, your spirit man, that's been born again by the Holy Spirit, leaves this world. It steps from time into eternity. There is no such thing as soul sleep, that people go in the grave and sleep forever. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But what was it like last Sunday as Marty stepped into eternity? He stepped into that bright unapproachable light that Paul talks about in Timothy and James talks about in James chapter 1 where it says the father of the heavenly light. What was it like? What did he see that night? What is he experiencing right now? Well, we're going we're to look at that this morning. We're going to look at that this morning. So let's take, family, a scripture guided tour of heaven this morning. The first half of Revelation chapter 22 and then we'll get into John's closing remarks which is how God chooses to close the canon of Scripture. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word as we study it now, Revelation chapter 22. Open our hearts and help us see, uh, if we can, the glory of heaven. Help us to see beyond this physical world into, the, into eternity and give us just a glimpse this morning of heaven. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 22, Calvary Chapel style, verse by verse. Verse 1 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its streets. So the next truth that we learn about heaven is found right here in this verse. Which, what does it say? There's a river with the water of of life. This river with the water of life is mentioned three times. It's mentioned last chapter, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 6. It's mentioned here, and it's mentioned also in verse 17 
of this chapter. But what can we pull from here? First off, it's a crystal clear, pure river. I don't know if you've ever been on Lake Murray, you've ever been in a river, normally you can't see more than a foot because the water's so cloudy. But in heaven, this river is going to be crystal clear. You can see right through it. It's going to be so refreshing. It's going to be so awesome. It's just going to be mind-blowing just to look at. Okay? Now, this river is not coming from a mountain. It's not coming from a crevice in the earth. According to verse 1, where is it coming from? It's flowing straight from the throne of God. He, God, will be the source of this river in the new Jerusalem, according to verse 1. This, this living water coming from the throne of God in heaven right now, Marty is seeing this, all believers in Christ who've gone home to be with the Lord, they are seeing this amazing sight in heaven. It's, it's not myth, it's, not, it's truth, it's reality, it's what is, what is. This living water cascading down from the throne of God like Niagara Falls filling believers with his glory, power, and God's overwhelming presence for all eternity. I think King David had a vision of this when he wrote Psalm. Listen to what he says in Psalms 46.4. Psalm 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. So there is going to be this beautiful scene in heaven. This, this beautiful river, and there's just going to be this unspeakable joy. You know, you think you've experienced joy now? You know, I experienced joy when I saw Emily and Daniel come into this world. Man, it brought my heart such great joy. I experienced such wonderful joy when I seen Irene walking down that aisle to become my wife. Okay? I've experienced a lot of joy in this life. But all the joy that you add them all up in this life will not compare with the joy that you are going to experience when you get to heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be like, it was worth it. I, I gave my life to Christ. I surrendered my life to him. And you are going to be blown away. Your jaw's going to drop. You're going to be in utter amazement at the beauty and the glory of heaven and the unspeakable joy. Now, verse 20, verse 1 actually goes into verse 2. If you see that, it says, and from the throne of God in the middle of its streets. And then halfway through verse 2, I'll call it 2b of verse 2, it says, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the next truth that we learn about this place called heaven is what? There's this massive tree of life towering, cascading over both sides of this river. The tree of life. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be magnificent. Back in the Garden of Eden, if you, if you know your Bible and you, you see this phrase tree of life and you study the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, it should take your mind back to the Garden of Eden. Because back in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life represented eternal life, God's blessing. It represented um, fellowship with God. But God also placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden to give Adam and Eve a choice to obey God or to disobey God. He gave them a choice. He did not create robots, okay? He placed them in the garden, did not create robots. He wanted to give them the opportunity to choose to serve him. If you, if you, if you question that, look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, where God specifically says, don't partake of that tree. He said, Genesis 2, 16, 17 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God gave a command there in the garden, but man made a foolish decision to rebel. 
tempted by Satan, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Sin entered the world. Cherubims blocked the path to the tree of life. And what do we call this? Paradise was lost. I believe the tree of life in heaven today is the same tree that was in the garden. God just moved it from the garden of Eden. He moved it to heaven. And you and I today, friends and family, we are invited to partake of the tree of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. That same experience that Adam and Eve were going to have with eternal fellowship with God in paradise, there in the garden before the fall, you will get to experience that in heaven. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, paradise, we will experience in heaven. The sights and the sounds of heaven will be mind-blowing and they will be amazing. And notice it says this tree of life that Adam and Eve could have experienced, you and I will experience in heaven. Back at verse 2, it says, It yields its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. This tree of life and this river, they represent God sustaining us for all eternity, having eternal life. This was what life was meant to be like before the fall. It will be completely restored. No more death, no more sickness, no more disease. It will be a perfect world, and it will not be boring. It will be exciting. There will be this joy, this euphoric joy that you get to experience throughout all eternity, and it will, it will just it will blow you away. You will be amazed. Verse 3, he says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Notice there in verse 3, he says, There will no longer be any curse in heaven. There'll be no curse. There'll be no death. There'll be no disease. There'll be no sickness, no tsunamis, no 9-11, no wars. And most importantly, because there's no curse, there will be no sin. You and I will get the greatest reward in heaven. And that greatest reward is this, eternal life. Sometimes that word just becomes a religious word to us. And, and we lose the meaning of eternal life. How many people want to die? I don't. I like life. I enjoy living. Okay? And death has a sting to it that the human race does not like. We will never get used to it. We will never get to a point where we say, oh, they're dead. That's good. No. Every time a loved one passes away, it breaks our hearts because we don't like death. But the gift of God is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. You will get to a point where you step into eternity and you will never, ever, ever have to worry about death again. That's huge. You know, I'm always going to the doctor, getting checked up and making sure everything's working okay and the ticker's working and all that. But one day I won't need a doctor. One day I won't, I won't need none of that. I will have eternal life. This is the reward of every born-again Christian. Death will be defeated. Sin will be no more. And family, you and I will live forever. And that's the reward of trusting in Christ. Spending eternity, not only having eternal life, but spending it with the one who is eternal in his presence. Let's continue. Verse 4. Verse 4. It says, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay? It's, you know, there, there were no cameras back in Jesus' day. All the artwork of Jesus we have today is just that. It's artwork. It's an artist's imagination of what he thinks Jesus may have looked like. You know, many artists portray Jesus as this long-haired Southern Californian, olive skin cool looking dude with long hair and a beard. The truth be told, we don't know what he looks like. We, 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 don't, we don't have a picture of him. They didn't have cameras back then. They didn't have selfies back in the first century. But one day, you and I will see him face to face in all his glory. You know, we won't be in these sin-ridden bodies that can't see the face of God. We'll, we'll be in these brand new glorified bodies 
and and the, the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh, has a glorified body, and we will get to see him face to face. I believe he will be the most beautiful being that you've ever laid eyes on. And yes, I do believe the scars will still be in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. And he will still bear those scars for all eternity to remind his people of what he did to gain your salvation. But you will see him face to face. And also the text says his name will be on their foreheads. I don't know what's up with that. (laughs) But it says their names, his name will be on our forehead. That's pretty cool. Something new that we'll get used to. But praise the Lord for that. Verse 5, it says, uh, There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. This phrase, the Lord God will illuminate them, in verse 5, that's interesting because Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, what does he say? I am what? I am the light of the world. You know, t- when I read that back in John, that makes me think of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ that is shining in our hearts, that's shining through his word as we study it, that shines through the body of Christ. But in the new heavens and the new earth, this phrase, uh, Jesus being the light of the world, will take on a whole new meaning. His light, his glory will shine throughout the entire universe. There will be no, no need for the sun. There will be no need for flashlights. I'll get to save money on batteries for all my flashlights. But there'll be no, excuse me, there'll be no need for light because his light will illuminate the entire universe and it will be the most beautiful, pretty, awesome, amazing light you see then the saying that he said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, then I believe that verse will be fully realized. Whoa, he truly is the light of the world and of the entire universe. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. What he's saying there, verse 6, is the same God that spoke through the Old Testament prophets is now speaking through him. And every word is faithful and true. Every word that's written about heaven, everything that's written in, in Scripture, you can believe it, you can trust it, You can love his word, and friends and family, you can build your life upon his truth. Because as he says in verse 6, these words are faithful and true. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. You're in the right place in life. Spending time with the Lord Jesus Christ, spending time in his word, living for him. There's no greater place to be, because this is the faithful word, the true word. He continues this thought in verse 7, but now most of your translations have this highlighted in red, meaning it's from the words of Jesus. In, in light of the, the words that he had, that he spoke, having the same authority as the Old Testament passage, he continues in verse 7 with Jesus saying this, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Family, what is the verse? What's the application there? We need to heed God's word. The Greek word for heed here is tereo. It means to observe, to keep, to hold fast, to guard. When you, clinging to Jesus is something we're all called to do. We cling to our faith in the Lord Jesus. But also with that clinging to Christ is we cling to his word. We, we hold to his word because clinging to his word and clinging to Jesus, they go together because it's Jesus' word. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We hold fast to scripture. We hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hold fast to everything he's doing in our life and through us and through the scriptures. So, At verse 7, there's a break here. 
Okay? Revelation chapter 22, you can just draw a line right here, and uh, verses 1 through 7 actually go with Revelation chapter 21 and his description of heaven. Now, as we move into verse 8 of Revelation chapter 22, these are what we call John's final words. This is God's way. This is not God's way. This is God closing the New Testament canon. These are the final words of Scripture. And these words apply not only to the book of Revelation, but they also apply to all of the New Testament. They're like bullet comments, okay? There's not, there's, 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 it's kind of like bullet comment after bullet comment after bullet comment. It's kind of like finally saying, okay, by the way, know this, know this, know this, and know this. So these are very important statements for us to understand. They're very serious. So now he shifts. Here we are, family, at the end of the Bible. The canon is fixing to be closed. The Holy Spirit is finalizing the New Testament documents that will be brought together into what we call our Bible that we have today. This is the final book, 95 AD. John's on the island of Patmos. He's a political prisoner of Rome. The angels come down. He's given this vision there in a cave, and he's writing down God's final instructions. And as we all know, final instructions are normally the most important instructions. So let's listen closely. Verse 8, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So John is saying, this is John, the beloved disciple, the one that was closest to Christ. He's testifying, hey, I saw these things. I wrote these things down. I was one of the 12 disciples. I have authority to write down Scripture inspired by the, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, and then I heard and saw, and I fell down to worship at his feet of the angel who showed me these things. Verse 9, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book, worship God. I think this is kind of funny. This right here, th these two verses right here, they really show you the authenticity of Scripture, okay? This wasn't made up. But these, these are real men that, uh, it's just, it's crazy. John is so overwhelmed in emotion, he falls down to worship this angel. And what does the angel do? He corrects him. He says, hey, knucklehead, get up. Hey, dummy, get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. See, we don't worship angels. We don't worship men. We worship God, okay? The, the, the head of the church is not the pope. The head of the church is not a pastor. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the supreme authority. He is the head of the church, and he is the one that we worship and follow. You know, honestly, I don't have no authority over you. I give you biblical instruction. I, 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 inst I teach the word. I, I feed the sheep. I equip the saints for, the, for works of service. But ultimately, you are responsible for your relationship with God. It is your responsibility to call upon the Lord. It is your responsibility to trust in Christ. It is your responsibility to have your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A pastor just comes alongside and gives instructions and, and shows people what the scripture says so that they can grow in their walk with the Lord. He is the head of the church. We worship him. Verse 10. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Wait a minute, Pastor David. This was written 2,000 years ago. And John is saying in 95 AD that the time is near. What's up with that? That's a, that's a long time span. What we need to understand is this. A thousand years in our sight is as one day to God. God dwells outside the realm of time and space. He dwells in eternity. So in, from God's point of view, at this very moment, here we are 2,000 years separated from Christ's sacrifice, but in eternity, it's like it just happened two days ago. So in light of eternity, 
He's coming, and he's coming quickly. He's coming quickly. And look at verse 11. Verse 11 is a very fascinating verse. I spent a, I just, it's just a really, let me, let me read it. Just a wonderful verse here. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Verse 11 is a very interesting verse, and this is what we call a, a proverbial parenthetical statement. Okay, if I lost half of you, let me explain that. Every person chooses for themselves the path that they will follow in life. You and I have no control over their decisions. Our only responsibility is to share Jesus with them in a spirit of grace and truth. Understand this, family. Some will accept Christ. Some will reject him. But whatever decision they do make, don't let it sway you. Don't let their decision move you in serving the Lord. You know, at the end of the day, I have a lost loved one, a lost friend. I share the gospel with them. I explain to them what repentance is. I explain to them what faith is. I explain to them what receiving Christ is. I've done my part. I've done my part. If the message, here it is, guys. If the message of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and being a new creation in Christ, if that won't draw them in, there's nothing that will draw them in. So we do it in a spirit of love and compassion and truth. But ultimately, every single human being has to make a decision for themselves. And whatever decisions are made around us, don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. You trust in Christ, you serve Christ, and you live for him. And you pray fervently for those who don't. And you show them love, you show them compassion, you show them kindness. We are not mean people. We are not arrogant people. We are not pride-filled people. We love all people from all walks of life, okay? Whether they agree with us or disagree with us. In my, in my book, I have no enemies. I have no enemies, only people that I can touch with the gospel and people that I can love on and care for no matter what. Amen? Let's continue. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he, was done, what he has done. So we've studied the book of Revelation. We saw that there's the rapture of the church, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And then we saw the, the second coming of Christ, uh, Revelation chapter 19. At the rapture of the church, uh, Christ takes his body to heaven. They stand before what we call the Bema seat. The Bema seat is not a judgment of salvation. Your salvation was judged at the cross and you were accepted. But at the Bema seat, we will be evaluated. We will be evaluated for what we did with what God gave us, our faithfulness, our commitment. But, and, and, but that's not salvation. That's just an evaluation of your works. You know, people will be given crowns. People will be rewarded. But then there's the second coming of Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation. And that's where we saw, remember we studied it in Revelation chapter 19, the great white throne of judgment. So that's what he's talking about. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. His reward is there for the body of Christ. And also to render to every man according to what he has done, he will judge the lost at the great white throne of judgment. Verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha, Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That's just saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. He was there in the beginning. He's there now, and he will be there in the end. He's the eternal God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Remember, we're no longer talking about heaven. These are the closing remarks. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. How do you wash your robe? Do I need to take my jacket off and take it home and stick it in the washing machine and wash my robe and put it back on? Is that what we do? 
No. We wash our robes by trusting in the cross, by trusting in Christ. That's what it means to wash your robe. Because there's only one place we find forgiveness, and that's at the cross. That's how we wash our robes. He said, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral person and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone. Here, here is a important point at the end of verse 15. And everyone who loves and practices lying. It's interesting that John, the Holy Spirit, through John, writes these words at the end of verse 15. He says, where everyone who loves and practices lying. That's, that's interesting because this is truly the difference between Christians and the world. Because truth be told, we both sin. Do you sin? Everybody's speaking, nodding your head, yes, yes, yes. I sin, you know, we sin, okay? And the world sins also. But here's the difference. The world loves their sin. The Christian hates his sin. The Christian hates his sin. He runs from it. He fights against it because we love Jesus. There is an, an, uh, uh, even in the born-again Christian, even inside each and every one of you today, in, in, including me, the pastor, remember, I'm just a wretch saved by grace too, just like you. Don't put me on a pedestal. We're all sinners saved by grace, okay? But inside of me, there is, there is this war between the spirit and the flesh. Can anybody relate? There, there, there's this war that takes place within us. Even though we're born again, spirit-filled, serving Christ, that old man is not completely gone. And we wage war against that old man. But here's the deal. We fight against him. We crucify him. We run from sin. That's the, that's the big difference between the Christian and the world. The, the world runs after their sin. The Christian runs away from their sin. Everyone who loves and practices lying, they love it. We don't. We hate it. And I look at myself and I'm like, oh, why am I doing the things I hate? You know, it's like this war, and it causes me in my flesh it causes me to go to my heavenly Father and, and, and resubmit myself. Lord, please take over. I feel like I'm in the flesh. I feel like I'm carnal. Lord, please help me in this moment. Please soften my heart. Let me wash my mind in your word. That's the Christian, okay? So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, you ready for this? Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. We are not perfect. Okay? But we fight against it. We war against it. We, we seek accountability. We seek discipleship. We seek prayer. We seek going to church so we, that we can grow and we can fight against our carnal flesh. Let's continue verse 16. He says, I, I Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Lord, what he's saying there is the Lord Jesus Christ is the descendant uh, of, of David. He, he is the, the, the Messiah that was foretold by the prophets. He is Israel's Messiah. He is the one that the entire Old Testament pointed to when he says, I am the root and descendant of David the bright morning star. It says, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take of the, <clears throat> the water of life without cost. Notice in verse 17, who invites the lost? When you look at verse 17, the spirit and the bride. That is who witnesses to the lost. You and I, Christian, we open our mouth. We, we share the gospel. We are the bride. And we tell all people, come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come experience eternal life. Come experience forgiveness of sin. 
come experience everything God has to offer. But on top of our witness, the Holy Spirit from heaven convicts the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we have a voice to the world, and the Holy Spirit has a voice. And what do we offer? It's written at the end of verse 17. We offer the water of life without cost. We explain that the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is a free gift. It is a free gift. It costs God everything at the cross by, by having his son sacrifice, but it's a free gift. You don't get to go to heaven by partaking of communion. You do not get to go to heaven by water baptism. You do not get to go to heaven because of church attendance. You do not get to go to heaven because you give your money. You, you, you get to heaven based on none of those. The only way a person gets to heaven is by trusting in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's the water of life without cost. Salvation is 100% from the Lord. All we do is bow our knee and say, please forgive me of my sin, Lord Jesus. I trust in you. That is the gospel. Justification by faith. And faith in Christ alone is, is, what, we ha- is what is given to us. Now, let's look at verse 18. Verse 18. You know, I, I believe verses 18 and verses 19 is written to all Christians but I believe there's a special emphasis placed on pastors and placed on leaders and placed on those who are in a place of teaching or authority within the body of Christ. Very stern warning, verse 18 and 19. Let's look at verse 18. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So it is to everyone, okay? It is to everyone, but it's, it's leaders and pastors and teachers, the ones that have the ability to present it clearly or to twist it. He says in verse 18, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. What he's saying here, verse 18, is there is a high price to pay for those who tamper with God's word. We don't add and we don't take away, period. There's no other writing this equivalent or equal with the Bible. Verse 18, nothing can be added. The book of Revelation, and again, remember I emphasized at verse 8, these are the closing remarks. This is closing the canon. So this applies not only to the book of Revelation, but it applies to all of Scripture. That uh, Scripture is complete, finished, and final. The canon is closed. There are no other inspired writings, not the Koran, not the Book of Mormons, not Joseph Smith, or not anything else written in this world outside of Genesis to Revelation. Now, I hear skeptics ask sometimes, well, what about the lost books? Did you hear about the Gospel of Thomas? What's up with those, what's up with those writings? And people try to build a case why we should add these other books to the scriptures. I'm going to tell you what we know about the Gospel of Thomas, okay? Just to give you an example of how weak and how frail their argument is. Because a lot of times when people present their argument, I don't think they know the details. I don't think they, they know the, what the scholars have discovered. But just talking about the... Y'all heard, have you heard of the Gospel of Thomas? You've heard of it. You've heard of it in the news. Here's what we know about the Gospel of Thomas. In December... 1945, okay, 2,000 years afterwards, two farm workers were searching for nitrate fertilizer in the hillside of Nag Hammadi, Egypt. They came across a large ceramic jar hidden in the cleft of a rock. Okay, Inside, they discovered these ancient leather-bound books. One of these books is what we call today the Gospel of Thomas, and there was other fragmented pieces in there of documents. In this Gospel of Thomas, there are 114 sayings attributed to Jesus. There are a total of today, right now, 2022, in the world today, in the museums, there are a grand total of four, one, two, three, four, four manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas today. 
one Coptic Egyptian version, which is complete, and three Greek fragments that are called P1, P654, and P655. Through scientific testing of the materials and analysis of the writings, they have been dated by scholars to sometime between the 2nd and 5th century A.D. Even more damaging to their validity is when you compare them side by side, they do not match, and they do not um, coincide with each other. They contradict each other. So you got one full manuscript, and you got three fragments, and people try to build a case on why this should be added. None of it lines up with the New Testament. None of it. And it's 2,000 years later. Come on, man. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And you found it in the cleft of a rock? So if I go out here in these little bushes behind this shopping center and I find something written with a name on it, can I just give it credibility? No. You would want to know what's behind it. But this begs the question, when you consider the, the document manuscript evidence of the Gospel of Thomas, where does the New Testament stand? Where does the New Testament, how does it, how does it stand in manuscript uh, evidence? And it, this, is, this is what we know. How, where does the New Testament stand? How many ancient manuscripts do we have today? Well, I'm going to go down a list of the uh, ancient manuscripts that we have today. That When I say you have today, that means you can get on an airplane, go to a city, drive to a location, and say, okay, there it is. That's, that's evidence. That's evidence. So here's the top uh, documents from antiquity of ancient documents. Number one is Herodotus. We have seven manuscripts today. Excuse me. <clears throat> seven manuscripts is what we have today. Julius Caesar, today, we have eight manuscripts from the ancient times. Plato, you see it on the screen. We have 10. Aristotle, we have 49. Homer's Iliad, yay! I don't know if you ever studied Homer's Iliad. Pretty cool Greek story. But we have 643 documents today that talk about Homer's Iliad. The number one document from ancient history is the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have 24,686 manuscripts today that date back to ancient times. And of that 24,686, 5,686 date within 100 years of Christ's earthly ministry. Friends and family, the Bible is solid. The Bible is solid. It is complete. It is accurate. And nothing needs to be added. It's complete. You can trust it. That's why the psalmist says, Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Okay? People want to talk about evidence and manuscripts and apologetics. Take them up on it. Go research it. It's an amazing truth that the Word of God stands true and is throughout the world. So we do not add anything to Holy Scripture. Let's look at verse 19. Verse 19 is the opposite. Verse 19 says, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. When I read this verse, and I know i got to get up before you guys and teach the word, I'm like, I can't take nothing away. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to teach it, to present it accurately. This is a severe warning for those who take away from the words of the, pro the book of this prophecy, talking about the book of Revelation, but again, the big picture the New Testament canon, it's, it's talking about all of Scripture. To take away means to twist or distort Scripture. To deny what is clearly written, we unapologetically hold firm to God's Word and everything it teaches, whether it be there's only one way for salvation through Christ, John 14, 6. We don't twist, we don't distort that. Or life begins at conception. That's a hot topic issue today. Jeremiah 1.5 says life begins at conception. I do not twist or distort that doctrine. That's when life begins. Or marriage 
is between one man and one woman, Genesis 2, 24. I don't twist. I don't distort that scripture. I, I, I can't. For me to stand before you, family, and tell you anything different, I would be deceiving you. And my soul would be in eternal jeopardy. Ministers who twist and distort the scripture will face a severe judgment. And I will not be counted with them. I will not be counted with them. We hold these truths not in a spirit of arrogance, not in a spirit of pride or being judgmental. There's no arrogance. There's no pride. We're we're not judgmental. But we hold them in, in a spirit of being faithful to God and being faithful to his word. If you come to Pastor David at Calvary Chapel, if you come to me with a question about life, faith, and God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to simply step aside and say, let's see what the Bible says. That's what I'm going to do. Because your opinion and my opinion doesn't matter. It's what does Scripture say? Again, not in an arrogant prideful, judgmental way, but in a spirit of truth and love and kindness and gentleness and compassion. We share, as as Paul says, I think it's in Ephesians, we speak the truth in love. That's where we stand. My fear of the Lord outweighs my fear of you and my fear of man. I do not fear man's judgment. I fear God's. And, you know, with, with Martin Luther, here I stand. I can't I can go no other place. Okay? That's the truth that we have to hold to. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take, his way, take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. I will not be denied. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm, I'm following him, and I hope you are too, all the way till we see that beautiful river and that beautiful tree in the new Jerusalem. That's truth. Let's can finish it up. Verse 20, verse 20. He says, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. I love how verse, how the, there, there it is. The Bible's complete. The canon is closed. But I love how the Holy Spirit through John ends the Holy Bible. One, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. He is coming. The Bible closes with that promise. We can bank our life on it, okay? I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen with the United States of America. I don't know what's going to happen with our economy. I don't know what's going to happen with Russia or, or everything else that's going on in this world. I don't know all the decisions going to be made. But one thing I do know, my Jesus is coming again. And, and, and my heart rests there. My heart rests there. Knowing that one day he will come again. And then verse 21, if you know anything about Calvary Chapel, you will know that the founder of Calvary Chapel in 1965 Chuck Smith, uh, Calvary Chapel started in 1965. Chuck Smith and his wife, they saw all the hippies out on the beach. They were tripping on acid and smoking marijuana and drinking. And, and the, the church, the, the, I don't know what you want to call them, just the church of that day had rejected them, had rejected them and, and, and gave them no place to come or, or, or they, they didn't try to reach out to them. But Pastor Chuck and his wife, they went out to the beaches and they invited these long-haired hippie with no shoes, dirty feet into their church so they could teach them about grace. They could teach them about the grace and the truth and the love of, of God. You know, I, I read one story once where uh, one of the elders got upset because all these hippies were coming in from the beach and they were dirtying up all the carpet. And it was becoming real nasty. And so the elder went to Pastor Chuck and said, hey, 
Man, they're getting their furniture dirty. Look at the carpet. Look at all the stains. Who's going to clean this mess up? You know what Chuck Smith said? Take up the carpet. Take up the carpet. They're coming in here because we're going to teach them about the grace of God. And if there's anything that you know when you come to Calvary Chapel Irmo, we are going to stress the grace of God. Because the grace of God, grace to you, is what changes our hearts. It's awesome how God ends the Bible. Verse 21, the promise of grace. An invitation to all to experience God's unmerited favor. His grace is for the rich, is for the poor, is for the prostitutes, is for politicians, is for the broker on Wall Street, is for your neighbors, and his grace is for you. His grace. He wants you to experience his loving grace. His grace that causes you to grow. The grace of the Lord Jesus will forgive you, cleanse you, and make you a new creation in Christ if you will invite him into your life to be your Lord and Savior. So I say to you, friends and family, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Be with you all. And then what's the final word? It's like a closing prayer. Look at the final word. Amen. So be it. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this awesome 32-week study in the book of Revelation. God, strengthen our hearts this morning in grace. Strengthen our hearts in truth. Help us to hold firmly to your word. And if there be anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray that they will call upon you now in this time of prayer, in this time of worship. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's simple, family, if you're not a Christian. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. I place my trust in you. Begin that journey of grace today and let the Holy Spirit do his work. God, open our hearts, soften our hearts by your spirit and by your grace. We love you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.